Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hey guys, hope you're doing all right. I uh, am recording this podcast introduction from the floor of my wife's closet. Glamorous times. Speaking of the times in which we're living, quick reminder, as I've mentioned before, uh, don't forget to join us for the sanity breaks we're doing every day or every weekday for the foreseeable future. We're calling this project 10% Happier Live, 3 Eastern, noon Pacific. You can view it by going to 10percent.com slash live. We'll put the link in the show notes. Every weekday, we bring on one of the best meditation teachers in the world. We do five minutes of guided meditation, followed by your questions. One of the big teachers coming up is Joseph Goldstein. Very excited about that. And he will be on this podcast very soon. One other quick note before we dive into our episode this week. We're still working to get our audio game, the quality of our audio. We're, we're working to get that improved. Um, I think we're doing a better job this week than we have in, in recent weeks, but your continued forbearance will be appreciated. All right, we're diving in now. Um, so many people, I've been hearing from a lot of people who have this issue. So many of us know somebody, maybe many people, uh, who we feel are not taking this pandemic seriously enough. So how do we how do we handle them? Do we yell at them, scream at them, lecture them, call them out on Twitter? Do we flood them with articles? Or perhaps is there a saner course of action that is likely to be more effective? In this episode, we have two experts in ethics to sort through this and other ethical dilemmas in the age of COVID-19. Joanna Hardy is a meditation teacher, a great one, and she's actually one of the featured teachers on the 10% Happier app, and she has a special interest in Buddhist ethics. Greg Epstein is the humanist chaplain at Harvard and MIT. Issues we tackle here include, is it ever okay to break uh, the social distancing rules? What are the ethical implications of moving your family out of a city and in, in, into the country? And what about stocking up on toilet paper? All that and more in this special edition of the 10% Happier podcast with Joanna Hardy and Greg Epstein. Here we go. All right, Joanna and Greg, thanks for being here. Really appreciate it. Great to be here with you. Thank you. So uh, this is we, we got we got a lot of uh, juicy stuff to dive in, to dive in on here, but let me let me just start by I, I would love for each of you, and I'll start with you, Joanna, to give your uh, my friend Sam Harris, who's the host of the Making Sense podcast, when he introduces people, he asks for for them to deliver their potted bio. Uh, so can you deliver your potted bio, Joanna, and also talk a little bit about how it relates to your view on ethics? It's so sad because I don't know what potted bio means. Is that P-O-T-T-E-D or P-O-D? <laughs> Pod- it's like, a, bio? it's like a, it's instead of taking a big tree in the wild, you don't give me the whole thing. You take oh, a, like a, a, like a potted plant bio. version. Okay, that's beautiful. I love it. Um, great. So my potted bio right now just feels really like human being living in a world that's trying to function in a loving, kind, yet, uh, you know, real way. So I teach, you know, I teach mindfulness um, and I teach in populations that wouldn't typically get access to a lot of these teachings because it seems to be very reserved for um, a certain demographic. So I'm interested in what's happening, you know, in communities that have less access to a lot of what might seem like 
you know, special care or care that people get when they have more than enough. Uh, So kind of working in a lot of social, racial justice topics around mindfulness and what does that look like um, to take care of, you know, the greater world versus an individual need. Just to be more specific there, you you have been teaching mindfulness for many and studying mindfulness for many years, and you teach uh, in criminal justice, uh, in a criminal justice context, along with some other contexts in which places other meditation teachers don't often go. Yeah, yeah. It seems like it, it, it actually, what one thing I'm really liking seeing is that more and more people are going into the, the just, you know, going into the prison system, going into underserved schools, going into foster care facilities, going into places that don't have access. But yeah, that's, that's my core passion, I would say. And not only going into and teaching mindfulness, but looking at systems, you know, looking at systems and structures and how when we pay attention, and and we'll talk about this around ethics, right? Um, When we pay attention to harm and and human need, um, what can change if if care is the predominant function versus economics or, you know, progress or power? So I'm just kind of mostly right now interested in systems and structures um, from this and through this mindfulness, non-harm lens. You've also done a lot of work, including with us at 10% Happier, on individual ethics and mm-hmm. how we navigate the world from an ethical standpoint. And you've had a particular interest in Buddhist ethics. Can you just give the basics on Buddhist ethics and why you're so interested in it and you know, sort of what a layperson would need to know at the most basic level? Yeah. Yeah. So it starts with me being a a very, a person who thought that rules did not exist for me. (laughs) And I probably have broken all of them um, in some way or another and realizing the impact that had on not only myself, my own heart, my own mind, how it shut me down, how it numbed me um, when I didn't care about myself or how I was treating myself but also how it affected my relationships with other people and how I'd caused harm to them and to, you know, people around me that I really, you know, didn't quite yet know how to care about, but eventually did. So a lot of my interest comes from personal, you know, my personal path of why am I so miserable? Why am I so numb? Why doesn't my heart work? You know, I thought my heart didn't work and there was something wrong with me. What do you mean by my heart didn't work? You meaning like you just didn't give a crap about anybody else? Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. There was a, my movement was really about getting through each day and, um, having what I wanted. And if it looked like something that was interesting to me, I'd take it. Right. So whether that was actually physically taking it or emotionally taking it from somebody else or um, if anything was in my way, um, I would find a way around the system so that I could have it. You know, and I don't need to get into all that. But one of the reasons that I'm you know, interested in the juvenile justice system is because I was a kid who had to deal with being in that system. Um, and it wasn't because I grew up poor or without access to funds. My family was upper middle class, right? So it was really just like this internal lack, emptiness, emotional emptiness. But why I spend so much time on this is through my mindfulness practice, through seeing like, oh, getting that does not actually make me happy. That Getting that is very temporary. And once I found that, oh, actually, this idea around delayed gratification or this idea around the natural law of cause and effect 
if I do this thing, then that thing happens. You know, very simply, if I get in a fight with a friend and I cuss them out and I call them names just because anger is arising in me, um, the impact and the outcome is going to be a friendship that's not working. Or if I steal or if I lie, the outcome very, you know, there's no magic to it is that something not great is going to happen. So um, a lot of my interest in this is the very pragmatic, practical standpoint and viewpoint of this sort of natural law of cause and effect. And we have this um, immense responsibility um, towards our, for ourselves um, and we also have this immense power, you know, within ourselves, as well as how we relate to others and the world around us through our actions, through our speech. And, and sometimes and we can talk about this more through our thinking, you know, through our um, mental habits. So once I realized how powerful this was in my own life, it was something, of course, I wanted to share more. And, you know, really took these as, I would say, core, you know, core components to my practice. And when I say practice, what I'm talking about is my spiritual practice, my ethical practice, the way I live, the way I show up, whether it's in my own home or driving down the street. Can you just give us the basics on Buddhist ethics? Because we did a whole course on the 10% Happier app in which I learned a lot about this. Buddhist ethics are, well, there are some pretty clear rules, like it's probably not a good idea to kill anybody. It's much less dogmatic and dictatorial and specific than many systems of ethics that I've encountered. So can you hold forth a little bit? Right. Yeah. And again, because of my sort of rebellious and anarchistic heart and mind, I was really drawn towards this offering of these guidelines that were not commanding me to be any certain way, but offering me sort of the uh, the challenge to, um, if I show up in a certain way, if I don't cause harm in a certain way, how much clearer, cleaner, lighter, again, going back to this numb heart, um, my life could be. And so the, the Buddhist ethical practice really rests in what we call the five precepts. And the five precepts very simply ask that we do not cause harm. You know, I mean, that's the basic and, and not cause harm to both ourselves or others, right? So it's, it also has a very altruistic and generous spirit to it, really looking out for taking care of the other people, other beings on this planet. Um, And it's not, and I shouldn't say, like I said, it's other beings, it's not only people. And so the five precepts, five guidelines, not killing, not stealing, um, or not taking what isn't freely given is another way it's said. Being wise and careful with our sexuality, um, so not harming relationship. Being wise and careful with our speech, and, and I'm happy to get into that. That means not lying. It means not gossiping. It means being kind, um, but not untruthful, right? So that's a big one. And then the last is not using intoxicants that lead us into mindlessness or heedlessness, So those are the five precepts. And for me, just as basic guidelines, I take these every morning as a reminder. Oh, this is, so today I'm not going to kill. Okay. (laughs) We can look at that in in the way um, of I'm not going to kill another human being. Um, But also, you know, how, how through fear do we cause harm to another being? 
but it can be as simple as somebody living in their life. And I remember as a kid, I had spiders in my room, you know, so I was, I think, nine years old. And there were these spiders that would come and visit me every night. And instead of feeling, now again, I wasn't a practitioner yet, but instead of feeling the need to squash them or call my dad to come to the rescue, I remember I started talking to them, right? And it was sort of like, okay, we have to live in this room together. How are we going to, how are we going to cohabitate? How about you don't harm me and I don't harm you? And, you know, that coming from a very pure child's heart, right? Um, But you know, so there's this thing like where we can cause physical harm to another living being. Let's say, again, it's a bug because we as humans have that very easy potential to just swat at something and kill it. But what, you know, what the mindfulness practice offers us is, um, is the pause and the why. You know, and so often we cause harm to others out of fear, right? And so if we if our mindfulness practice really allows us to check in and check into our own fear, check into our resistance, check into um, possible impact or outcome, um, it, it allows us to stop in a moment and, um, you know, have a have a, a heart that might be filled with a little bit more um, capacity to say, oh, this is an ant, you know, how much is that really ruining my day? I mean, I, you know, you know, Dan, I could go on and on about this. For, so you let me know when it's time to stop. And, you know, also I, I'm thinking right now about, um, obviously, so the second precept, this not taking what isn't freely given, there's so many subtle levels. So, you know, we can look at that as not stealing, you know, very simply, okay, I'm not going to take your stuff and you're not going to take my stuff, right? I'm not going to steal a bike. I'm not going to steal off the shelves. but the converse of not taking what isn't freely given is also being generous, is taking care of others. And so I'm thinking right now, you know, while we're in the middle of this COVID, very intense time is what what is taking something that we don't actually need look like? You know, and we're, we're looking at it and it feels metaphorical, the toilet paper, right? Which is like how random, you know? that it's that and not dish soap or, you know, whatever, something else. Um, But how does our, how does our idea around, you know, societal responsibility and ethics show up at a time when right now we're all in this together and um, me taking something that I don't actually need is taking from somebody else. Um, and so, you know, I've spent a lot of time looking at that and what does renunciation look like in terms of what do I really need? Like, do I want a hot fudge sundae? Totally. <laughs> do I really need a hot fudge sundae? Probably not. So there, there's this really beautiful process um, that myself and my family, you know, we're talking about it quite a bit. What are we going through right now? And it, and it really co- keeps coming back to me. Um, around this idea of the precepts and our ethical practice um, yeah, and how we cohabitate. I have a lot more to say about, to ask and say and comment about Buddhist ethics because it's such an incredible subject. And I actually think it ties into self-interest in a pretty deep way. And as mm-hmm. you know, I'm very interested in self-interest, but I, I do want to bring uh, Greg in and we'll, we'll get to some of this other stuff. Greg, can you just do the potted bio thing and also just tie your uh, personal and professional history to your uh, interest in ethics? 
Sure. So I, my title that I'm probably best known for is I'm the humanist chaplain at uh, both Harvard and MIT now. Um, been uh, the humanist chaplain at Harvard since 2005 and uh, have been at MIT as well as at Harvard for the last couple of years. So I'm a chaplain for the non-religious, essentially, people who define themselves as humanists or atheists or agnostics or, or otherwise uh, religiously unaffiliated. For a lot of the last decade, I ran a congregation of uh, what we called atheist agnostics and allies that, that, um, that was really interesting, sort of hundreds of people coming together and trying to build community with one another. But in the past year, I took uh, a sabbatical, was given a grant to, to take a, a whole year-long sabbatical to focus on researching and writing about ethics in uh, the technology industry. And I was really diving into that research and, and finding it absolutely fascinating until a little something called Corona happened. Um, and uh, in the last couple of weeks, I've kind of taken a sabbatical from my sabbatical because um, people have been really... Uh, hit hard in so many ways um, on uh, the campuses that I serve and obviously everywhere uh, by this crisis. And um, I just found myself a couple weeks ago, all of a sudden, having a lot of students to, to, to help care for. What about your background, personal and professional interests brought you to thinking about ethics? You know, I, I think I was the kind of kid uh, from an early age that just really wanted to, to try to understand why, what, what, why is this world the way it is? What, why are we living the way that we're living? Why don't we try to live a different way? I mean, I think it became clear to me as I got older and realized, well, my mom's parents were refugees twice over. They, you know, her parents had to come from uh, Eastern Europe as young teenagers to, they they got to Cuba and they had to build a whole new life there because they were fleeing pogroms in the Holocaust and what have you. They had to um, send my mother to this country on two days notice by herself with nothing. And um, they were separated as a family uh, for multiple years until they could reunite. And they had to build an, a whole new life here, learn a, a whole new language here a second time. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm the product of intergener intergenerational trauma. And, and I, it took me a long time to figure that out. My whole family, my whole existence really is sort of predicated on the fact that, that humans have to go through incredible suffering at times. Um, we, we have to go through experiences that are just so hard and painful and scary and we don't know the way out and we don't know if there will be a way out. And, and we find ways to cope um, in the midst of that, but it's, it's not easy. And I, I guess, you know, I just, just happened to be somebody that was sort of steeped in that from, from early on, but also had a kind of massive privilege. Like I had this very mixed sense of, of myself in the world where, you know, I, I could sort of identify with people that were, um, in power and that were that were doing very well in life and and I could also just really deeply feel the part of myself that was in pain and was suffering and had been wronged and and you know I've just been trying to use my life to figure out you know what what the what the path to walk is um, 
you know, when, when, you know, all of us have some degree of, of, of both of those experiences. Great. I appreciate that. Thank you. So jo- Joanna talked about her ethical framework, which is a Buddhist one. What is yours? Uh, because you're a humanist. Yeah. Uh, and I've uh, I've heard from people who are, and I'm sure you've heard this a million times, but I, back when I used to be a religion reporter, I heard from a lot of my new newly formed friendships with people of faith, and I would explain that I'm an agnostic, and they would say, "Well, how do if you don't believe in God, how do you discern between right and wrong?" So, mm-hmm. what do, how would you describe your ethical framework? Sure, yeah, thanks, Dan, and and you happen to have given uh, a great interview, asked a lot of good questions uh, to a, a young chaplain. Uh, that I know about about ten years ago that that was influential on on my life. So I appreciate that. You know, as we've discussed then, although my perspective on it has stayed the same at, at times and in, in some ways and, and and has evolved in others. Uh, yes, I I have a humanist perspective. I come from a, what you call a humanist life stance or worldview or or philosophy of life, and um, that means that uh, I believe that human beings created religion, uh, not vice versa, that we human beings have created our, our entire culture and, and value system. We, we, we did it as, as animals that evolved to develop uh, moral systems and, and you know, ways of living that are, are a little different than, than other forms of animals that, that live on this rock, this pale blue dot that's, you know, four and a half billion or so years old in a, in a universe that's about 14 billion or so years from out, out of, of a big bang that blew up whatever came before it. We're all trillions of interconnected cells. We're, we're, we're billions upon billions of congregations of, of living entities that make up who we are and what we are. And at our best, we are we're extraordinary examples of collaboration and cooperation and, and mutual concern and care just in one little finger. But at our worst, you know, we stop cooperating, we stop listening, we stop we stop interacting, and and uh, we destroy ourselves. Not to mention one another. So, you know, uh, to me, humanism is a it's an exhortation. It's a it's a it's a call to our fellow human beings to to live the best possible lives that we can. And that to me very much means living a life of love and care and connection with one another, a life of, of truth and, and understanding to the greatest degree that we're capable, because that those are the only things I know that that really make life worthwhile. But let me, let me just ask one follow-up here, because yeah. maybe this is the same, th- maybe it comes down into in many ways, the humanist ethical structure framework is similar to the Buddhist one, which is, from what I'm hearing from you, and you should please correct me, it's a kind of don't harm. That's, the bottom line seems to come down to we're all interconnected in this m- mysterious existence. Let's try to not hurt each other. That resonates with me to some degree. I, I, I certainly wouldn't. I, it, it's not wrong. Um, I, it, it to me, feel I feel the need to respond to that with uh, what can we try to do on a positive side, too? Hmm. You know, there are so many things that we actually can do for and with one another that make life more worth living. And no, there aren't any perfect formulas about that, but you know, when you're in the middle of a, of a moment in life, when, when people are, are coming together and helping one another and, and it feels good to be alive, you, you just know that. But the point is to me, do I have 
connections with other human beings who are also only human and who are also suffering and struggling. We see each other, we know each other, and, and we're with each other, and, and, and we, we, we get to experience how worthwhile that actually makes life. Because can I just tell you, like, when I was in my 20s and even early 30s, which is, you know, when I met you for the first time, Dan, I mean, I, I don't know that I really fully recognize that. You know, like I, I was still, I was still like so caught up in just trying to, um, for me, it was, it was like, I, I was told that if I didn't accomplish things in life and, and didn't, you know, didn't do things that were special, that I would really basically not be worthwhile as a human being. I was, I kind of got that message. I internalized that. And I think I was like, still my late twenties, early thirties, I was still very much like it caught up in, I've, I'm going to prove that I can show everybody, you know, how good I am, blah, blah, blah. And, um, man, it sucked. It was just a terrible, terrible. And I wasn't really, I don't know that I was actively harming anybody, but I just wasn't connecting with them. I, I appreciate that. I, I, I appreciate your clarification about, and, and it, 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 it rhymes in many ways with what, what Joanna was saying that For sure. you can, you can, you can interpret not stealing in the negative. You can also make it more positive and, and interpret it as, um, as be generous. So, all right, that's great. Now that we have like, uh, your, both of your framework, uh, on, on the, on the table, we can dive into some ethical dilemmas. So let's, let's talk about COVID in the, in the midst of this pandemic, there are so many ethical dilemmas for us as we try to navigate this. So I want to go through a few of them and get your, your thoughts on, on how we can navigate. And I'll, let me just start with the one that I'm hearing about the most from people, which is what do you do when people in your life are not taking this seriously, who are, you know, not socially distancing, not washing their hands, uh, raising questions about whether this is all, uh, a hoax. Let me start with you, Joanna. What's, what's your view on, uh, given your background on, on how we can handle this? Do we talk to them? Do we not? How do we talk to them? Et cetera. Yeah, no, thank you for that. Cause it's definitely something I'm dealing with in my own family. <clears throat> um, and I, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to go to the wise speech, um, <laughs> precept because it's what I've really depended upon. Um, and one of the aspects of the wise speech precept is, is it timely, right? So what is the right time to talk to somebody about something so that the possibility of it going in and making sense is real. So I don't think it works um, to start sending, you know, flooding somebody with articles, flooding somebody with, uh, you know, proven points by the CDC or the president or the governor or mayor of whatever state or city that you live in. To me, that that doesn't feel, you know, when we're talking like we are about this, like, ethical, mindful way of approaching something what I'm realizing is that when I talk to somebody truly and meaningfully from a place of like, I'm worried, you know, I, right now I have, I do, I have two living parents and I'm worried about them. And one of them lives with my brother and my brother works at a car dealership and the car dealership is still open. And so he on the daily, and he not only works there, but he kind of runs it. Right. So on the daily he's engaging he said, Joanna, just know that I'm not shaking hands. And I was like, okay, good. Okay, first step. But so what I'm asking him is, you know, 
I won't say his name, but I'm really, I'm worried. I'm worried about mom. And I love that you're taking care of her, but I'm hoping that, you know, we can be in this care together. Um, and, and, and I'm, I'm noticing how he softens when I come from that perspective versus, um, you know, do you know the Matilda law? The Matilda law, um, is the, is New York state's law. And I think it's a great, um, you know, but it's like, it's really a law about how to te- treat the elderly predominantly or other people. I'm not seeing that as a function that's really working very well, right? Um, this sort of marshalling. People in this country in particular, and I know we have people from other countries that listen to 10%, but martial law is not how we politically um, work. So for me, just coming from this place of kindness, care, um, sensitivity, understanding, because I want to listen to the person that says this is BS, right? I want to I want to know where they're coming from also. Um, are they coming from a place of fear? Are they coming from a place of lack of understanding? Are they coming from, you know, why? I asked my brother why, like, what are you listening to that I'm not listening to? And I'm listening to the politicians and the news stations that I wouldn't typically listen to so that I can... I can kind of have a broader view um, of what other people might be experiencing. Greg, what's your view on this ethical dilemma? How, 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 do you, how would you advise people to handle a situation where somebody in their life is, is in, in, in the view of the, the person to whom you're speaking, not, not taking this uh, situation seriously enough? Well, first of all, I think it could help to just acknowledge that the, extraordinarily radical changes that it seems like we've all made in our lives in a space of like half a month. Um, I mean, patterns of living that, that took us all decades to, to establish. And it's like, nope. Okay. I, oh, I got the news. Okay. There's going to be this virus and we're going to just change it all. And so in that sense, um, you know, in, in our, in our mindset, in our in our hearts, I think that can allow us to have some compassion for the person that is just rebelling against this right now and saying, "Screw this! I don't want to make these changes. I don't think I need to." I, you know, I think what we can do, the, the the sort of practical thing, like the first thing that you can do to start changing somebody. Because they actually, they have to voluntarily change. Like we, we're not capable of following people around in this environment and say, oh, I saw you, I saw you, you screwed up, you, you know. So we have to actually motivate the people in our lives, every one of us do, to, 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 to make some changes. And I think expressing um, compassion for them has been the thing that, that, that has worked best in my life, um, you know, like I can kind of screw up calling my mom at times, you know, like I'll, I'll go a couple of weeks and I know she wants to talk to me, but I just don't. And, um, or, or my brother or, or, you know, I don't make the calls to my friends that I sometimes think I should make. And I, I think what I tried to do in this case is like identify the people in my life that I think were most at risk of, of not taking this seriously. And like, just try to do a better job than I usually do of, of letting them know that I, I really care about them. And, um, and they, you know, I really want to see them make some changes in their behavior because this is just, this is not going to work for them and for any of us if, if they don't. And, um, you know, it's such an imperfect strategy, but at the same time, like 
if if we can't all as a society start like expressing more love and care and compassion for one another now, then um, we're we're all really in in a bad place. And and I I actually think it's the thing that that works with this ethical dilemma best. That I mean I really agree with that. And it's it's a big ask though. It's interesting because. As Joanna knows, because she's been on, um, I've been hosting these daily sanity breaks at uh, 3 Eastern, noon Pacific. We've been doing these uh, daily live meditation uh, breaks for people. And we take questions from the audience, and so many people are saying, <laughs> we get the same question all the time, which I, I, how do I manage my rage at people who are not taking this seriously? And, you know, there are a lot of answers to that question. You can be mindful of your rage and all this stuff. But the the radical move or a radical option is to really try to empathize with their with the denial of the people you're angry at and to think about, you know, I look at the kids in Florida who were partying on the beach recently. And I looked at their, you know, interviews on the, on, on the internet. And I actually thought to myself, wow, well, like I was heedless when I was a young person. And is it possible that I would have done the exact same thing? Yeah. And do I feel in some ways their desire to be connected to their friends, to live out their youth the way they want to live out their youth? To They're, they're talking about it in terms of partying, but another way to think of it is belonging. And so there's some deep needs there if you're willing to look at it in the right way. And so I, I do think empathy is an uncomfortable thing to ask for, for people who are angry at the COVID deniers. But I, I do think it's potentially a, a really useful thing to ask ask for. Can I just throw one yeah. more thing in there too, is that, um, you know, if we're talking about this from the sort of 10% happier mindfulness meditation perspective is that, you know, um, us being practitioners does not mean that we have to just take whatever's thrown at us. It does not mean that, um, you know, it's just like we passively sit back and um, accept, you know, the word acceptance is used a lot or be with or let go or, you know, all those terminologies are often used in, in the mindfulness world. But, you know, it's also a time now it's okay to stand up for. And like, I am, I am a mama bear with my home, you know, like I'm going to take care of my house and my family and the people that walk into this are into my home. Um, they, there are certain guidelines, you know, and that's kind of just the way it is right now. So there's a lot of wisdom, you know, and a lot of clarity that comes with our mindfulness practice that um, can take some of the confusion out of these conversation questions. You know, so that so that kid in Florida, the one that became the meme and everywhere, you know, he did a big apology yesterday. And um, I don't think he wrote the apology because it's like... <laughs> Like his parents hired somebody good to write that apology. <laughs> but, you know, it's sort of like um, a lesson was learned. A lesson was learned by probably somebody being firm and clear and straightforward. So there's also this aspect, you know, it's like, yes, there's the empathy and the compassion. And like, we all want to be that and do that. And at what point is it really important to say no? You know, because we're looking, at, when I look at the title of this, if it's still the same as societal responsibility or social responsibility, you know, when in the, in our society's time have we not said no? And in turn, you know, Greg, you're talking about your family. I know I'm talking about my ancestors, you know, and Dan, I'm sure your ancestors, you know, it's like, at what time did we not say no and suffered hundreds of years of consequences? I'm not saying that's what's happening here, but 
you know, just like really paying attention to the balance of what ethics is asking for. You know, there's this, we keep talking about the kindness and care, but there's also like this um, very important aspect of what are we taking care of? You know, what are we, what are we doing to move forward? And what are the consequences of not taking care? Well, Greg, I'd love to bring you in on that because yeah. it, this is a, it's a, tricky balance because Joanna, you said a couple of things that I don't view as contradictory, but they're different approaches to the same thing. On on the one hand, you are very tough when you need to be with somebody who's potentially out of line or not taking seriously enough the 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 dangers here. On the other hand, with your brother, you're you're being firm and tough and clear, but you're also trying to empathize with his standpoint. You're trying to not flood him with articles. Um, so you are you're doing both of these things. And that strikes me as an interesting balance to try to strike. I mean, I, I'll say at the beginning of this crisis, I did my first Twitter call out of my life. I'm not a fan of Twitter call outs. I think it Twitter brings out our worst a lot. And it's a lot of sort of not always, but there's some sort of preening and, and virtue signaling that I see on Twitter. Um, and But I, I saw somebody who I randomly happened to follow, a radio host who said, this is nothing but a bad cold. The media is making a big deal of it. And I retweeted it with the comment, sorry, dude, this is just like, I didn't say, I can't remember exactly what I said, but something effective, this is just phenomenally irresponsible. I don't know. Like, I'm, so ethically, was that the right thing to do? Or should I have tried to like have an offline conversation with him? What do you think, Greg? Uh, I mean, first of all, you know, you're not going to get it perfect every time. I would say, um, I mean, I, I, I liked what Joanna was saying. I think that that anger is one of our basic emotions. It's it's part of who we are. I, I tend to have trouble accessing my anger, actually. Um, you know, I I grew up in a way, I was raised in a way, I think a lot of women are, are typically raised this way, um, where you know, we're taught to be nice and we're taught to be accommodating and kind of um, to help other people feel all right. But I think that in any case, you know, anger, sadness, fear, these are just basic emotions that are bubbling around in our brain a hundred percent of the time. And whether we're feeling them or accessing them or, or whatever, um, I, I think that we are always with those things and they are always with us. And so the, the, the question to me that, that I find really interesting and, and that I have to kind of live the day to day dilemma of myself is like, what's the first of all, how do I in a crisis, like if I have no idea who I am? And what I'm even feeling, which I'm perfectly capable of just completely losing sight of that, then I'm not going to be that much use to other people most of the time. You know, it's going to be very difficult to help other people if I'm just a mess of emotions and I have no idea what any of them even are. And then once I kind of get a hold of them, you know, I find that I actually have to make some decisions about like, you know, is this a is this an okay time to just let my anger out? Um, or should I try to, you know, put it back into, into place? And I, I think, you know, I, I think letting some anger out at, you know, you're, you're doing wrong. Your, 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 your actions are going to hurt people is totally appropriate and healthy. And I think there's a difference between a kid on spring break who, who's really screwing up and, and might make a lot of people sick and like a politician or a media leader, um, who ran for office or, or, or applied for a job that, puts them in a position to influence 
countless thousands, millions of people and um, our anger at those kinds of situations and people is is well placed. Like we got to focus it. We've got to focus it on on shutting their their harmful actions down as quickly as we can, if we can. Stay tuned. More of our conversation is on the way after this. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash happier. As they say at Amica, empathy is our best policy. Whether you need auto, home, or life insurance, they're ready to help you protect the things that matter most to you. They're a mutual company, customer-owned, in service to you. Amica representatives are here when you need them, and you can take comfort knowing a real person will be there on the phone to take care of you because the greatest measure of their success is your satisfaction. All right, so here's another ethical dilemma I'd like to dive in on. Joanne, I'm going to start with you again. You referenced before toilet paper. And actually, somebody sent me a meme today of a bunch of cats licking their butts. And the the um, mm-hmm. quote, the caption was something to the effect of, I don't know what this big toilet paper fuss is all about. Anyway, setting that aside, uh, I, I, under, I empathize with the desire to like if I, I it's impossible in New York City right now, from what I can tell, to get Clorox wipes. If I walked into the store tonight and saw a bunch of Clorox wipes, I would probably buy too many. And so how do we navigate this? We 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 we're scared. And so the it gives us a sense of control to accumulate, to acquire. What's your recommendation in this situation that many of us face? No, it's so, it's so good. It's so good. It's so juicy, this conversation, really. And in this question, what I really am hearing is like, well, how am I including, how am I being thoughtful of and remembering that I'm not the last person on the planet? I am appreciating stores in my neighborhood because they are limiting purchases to, to, to it's the number two right now. Um, and, I, you know, I'm really appreciating that because they're kind of putting the kibosh on, um, you know, or they're putting the limit for people that can't limit themselves. You know, and it comes back to, I, I brought it up on the um, the live thing the other day, that marshmallow experiment with uh, Stanford, you know, that idea that if you take one now, um, you know, you can eat it. And if you can actually wait, you can have two, right? So it's that idea that the why the why is is the the deeper question, and again, and, and because we're on the ten percent podcast, and we're asking into practitioners to really feel into the why, 
And if fear is the leading factor here, we're going to be overwhelmed by that. I mean, it's impossible not to be. I mean, I can't even tell you how many times I've been watching the TV and going, this is fake. Like, I don't mean fake in the way that people, I'm like, this is all being shot in a movie, you know, studio and we're being manipulated right now. Like this actually isn't happening. They're stealing my money. Just like the moon landing. Yeah. It's a Margaret Atwood book, you know, and I'm just like, this is sci-fi that we're living in right now. And so, um, just to come back to your point is, and I don't want to sound corny and like spiritual and practicey about it, but really asking into that question of why, because there are, yes, there are things that we don't have like ventilators and masks and gloves and gowns. And those things we know we're in a deficit of in this country. We are not in a deficit of toilet paper. We are not in a deficit of Clorox wipes. They just can't stock them fast enough, right? That's what we're being told again. So I guess the question that I'm asking people to ask themselves is why they're doing what they're doing when they're doing it. Um, And really just having a a reflection on it. And is it, if it's completely and totally fear-based, again, like, you know, whatever empathy or compassion we're turning towards other people, we need to remember to turn towards ourselves. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm scared right now. I'm afraid right now. I am doing things that I wouldn't normally do. How am I taking care of others? And this is what I just, I love the word humanist. I'm so interested, Greg, in, in what you're talking about. And I'm going to definitely look into it more. Um, but Likewise. just this idea of, you know, if we were living in a tribe right now, you know, if we were all sitting around a fire in a tribe, like, you know, we would not even be considering sharing that would just be a given because our whole survival is dependent upon our individual survival and vice versa. So, um, you know, it's, I know it's a big, it's a big ask. Um, and I can say that from a place of privilege and I can say that from a place of having everything I need. But when I know when I'm taking something, it means somebody else is not getting something. So I hear a bunch of things in there that are interesting to me. One is, yeah, to, to to look at what's motivating you in the moment when you're shoving uh, 75 rolls of toilet paper into your cart. Another is to step back and, and consider how that would impact other people. And then, uh, 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 and yet another aspect is you to recognize that there are times when you're going to do the thing you're not proud of because we're all in this new shocking set of circumstances and we are uh, there are going to be days where and maybe weeks where we we operate in ways that we're later not super proud of and we need to be ha- be easier on ourselves given that we're trying to navigate a whole new world so it sounds like self compassion which is not my favorite term but it is a concept i really like um is going to be key in terms of doing the yeah. right thing here well and this is such a, a true um reflection for us on our you know this is sort of the microcosmic experience around you know when we're talking about global warming and where we're over talking about um, racial injustice or what we're talking about. These, all of these things that we're being faced with right now are not new in human experience. I mean, they might be new in the last, I know, I know the number, no president has had to, you know, deal with something like this in the last hundred years, but this isn't new to human existence and, and human survival. So it's really, 
you know, we are being asked the bigger questions. We are being asked the bigger ethical questions right now. But but I want you to go back to self-compassion because I don't, that somehow got, it feels to me like we're all going to make mistakes. We're all trying to do the right thing here, but there are going to be times when we make mistakes and self-compassion seems like a really important thing to employ. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, because Right. So coming back to like, let's, let's say we're having an incredibly fearful moment. Um, Like Greg pointed out, you know, fear, anxiety, anger, all of these things are, are real human emotions. Like we can't pretend they're not here. And anytime we pretend they're not here, then we're bypassing something. So those are very, those are very real. And so the kind of tenderness and care that we can hopefully um, reflect back on ourselves is the acknowledgement, not the, you know, the acknowledgement, I'm afraid right now, right? And that in and of itself is compassionate. If instead, just like all the gobbling and greed, and, you know, we call it sometimes the hungry ghost or that kind of um, pushing people out of the way and not even thinking about it, all compassion is out the door. But the compassion piece, the self-compassion is, yeah, I'm afraid, and my and my fear makes me angry. My fear makes me feel lonely. You know, there's so many lonely people right now. You know, I'm I keep I keep talking about oh, it's so great to be with my family, and my husband, and blah 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 blah. You know, and and again, that's privilege talking because there's also people that are feeling really alone right now. Um, so again, a, a need for compassion, like a lot of care, a lot of taking care, I'm going to take care of myself in this loneliness. I'm going to take care of myself in this fear. I'm going to take care of myself in this, in this sickness, you know? Um, And then I want to just go back to the wisdom piece that I pointed to earlier. Compassion and pity can kind of be, call them the, you know, near and far enemies. So, so self-compassion does not mean self-pity. Right. So it also means like, okay, well, then what do I need to do? What what action can I take to really take care of myself? It's not about wallowing in it. It's like, okay, and now what's my next step? Oh, actually, I need to pick up the phone and call somebody and say, I need some, I need food, you know, or I need, I need something. Right. So really watching the difference between compassion and pity, um, especially for the self. Again, I, this is where I feel like mindfulness is so helpful at, at saying to us, wait, wake up, look at what's actually happening. What is happening right now? I'm afraid. I'm alone. I'm hungry. I'm whatever. And what do I need to do about it? There are two other ethical dilemmas I want to run by you guys, and we'll, we'll, we'll try to dispatch with them quickly and then let you go. There's been a lot of gnashing of teeth over the issue of more affluent people leaving crowded cities to go to suburbs or the country. You know, here in New York City, people are going out to the Hamptons, uh, which is on the eastern tip of Long Island, or people are flying to Hawaii because they want to be away from crowded areas. They think it's the safest move. But the people who live in those areas are like, well, you're bringing germs here and you're going to stress our food supply and our uh, our health systems. But I see it from both sides. I mean, I understand why people would want to, if they're going to be hunkered down for three, four months to be in a place where it's, you know, they can 
can, they have a backyard, et cetera, et cetera. And I see why somebody who lives in a place where there are backyards would be frustrated about, by an influx of city dwellers. So, Greg, what's your take, right or wrong, to want to leave the city? Well, I think it's too late now. I mean, I, I think I think at this point, people who are trying to do that, um, especially like let's say if they're leaving a place like New York City, where you know it's already the the eye of the storm, the the heart of the pandemic. To, to go somewhere else, um, I, I think they can rightly expect their neighbors wherever they get to to be absolutely furious with them. Um, and, you know, unless you really are, are accidentally, you know, through through um, very, very little fault of your own sort of trapped somewhere right now where it's just utterly unsustainable for you to stay there. You know, you got to look at it like, yeah, it is your own fault um, if, you know, and, and you are you, you do hold some blame if you're trying to, you know, get somewhere else just to be a little bit more comfortable. Joanna, do you want to weigh in on that? Like, I, I, I have friends who left the city. Now, they did it a while ago uh, before. I don't think they brought the risk of germs to where they went. But I understand the desire. You know, the, a friend of mine has a house in the country, so he went there. It's his house. But it is adding strain to the to the food supply and to the more importantly, I think, because the food supply isn't really in jeopardy, but to the to the healthcare system. So mm-hmm. what what would the Buddha say about that? <laughs> um, I, I feel like that's probably more of a New York problem than across the board in this country, you know, just in general, like that's not most people don't have second homes or another option. I do know people that are going um, to stay with family members because they want to be close to their parents or their cousins, siblings, whatever. Um, so people are moving households to go be with other people in case anything drastic happens. But again, you know, if we if we go back to this sort of, you know, since this is like this ethical thing, it's like, well, what's your intention? Like, what's your intention and what's the impact? And are we paying attention to that? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's people who can afford an Airbnb somewhere, you know, and they they, they feel like, Hey, the world is still my oyster. You know, I can still go wherever I want to go. I can still do whatever I want to do. And the point is that there was a lot that was harmful about that kind of mentality before all of this. And 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 you can see some real obvious harms now. I mean, I'm not saying that, you know, I haven't become like a so total socialist, whatever, that everybody needs to have the exact same amount of money and all of that. I mean, I hope I hope your listeners won't just sort of shut me down immediately because they think that that's what I'm trying to say. But I am saying that. Um, we live in a world of savage inequalities. You know, if, if somebody wants to just take their own, you know, they're in a city like New York that where they're already incredibly likely, or, you know, in other words, there's a very solid chance that they're carrying this virus around with them and just go wherever they want to go for no other reason than their own comfort and pleasure. They need to take a close look at that and expect their neighbors to be angry at them when they get there. Fair, fair point. Let me run one more dilemma by you guys. I'm, I've been reading about folks who are sort of knowingly breaking the rules of social distancing occasionally because they want to show personal affection. I read the, uh, about a, the case of a, a mom who's immunocompromised and she shouldn't be snuggling up with her grown kids because it's, you know, she might get sick, but she really wants to. And so she occasionally will break the rules. 
uh, you know, the argument, uh, it's hard to argue against that, but the argument against it would be that she's upping the odds that she ends up in a hospital taking a ventilator that maybe she wouldn't have had to have taken if she had been more careful. And so that strikes me as really difficult. So I'll, I'll, I'll start with you, Joanna. Yeah, this, this one, I don't feel so confused about. Again, it goes back to, um, this idea of renunciation, uh, and of the hashtag, not right now, you know, it's like, really watching our impulses, you know, really watching what this need, this desire, this immediate, you know, because like my daughter li- lives in New York. My daughter is one of those people that migrated away because she was a student and came home. But I could, you know, she lives away for five, six months out of the year. I want to hug her every day. Every day I want to hug my daughter, but she doesn't live here. So I can't. Right. And so what I then work with are those experiences and feelings of of want of, you know, like not having something that I really want. People have don't have things that they really want and even really need every day all the time. And so what's it like for right now to say, yeah, I really feel this way. And I'm going to wait because it's serving the the bigger progress and the bigger process and the greater good or whatever we you know, whatever anybody's tradition wants to call it. And and I I feel and this is where I feel like super meditator dominant is as a meditator, um, and as especially as somebody who sits retreats and silent retreats, we really know what renunciation's about. We really know what it's like to not have something right now. Right. And and to learn how to hold it, to sit with it, to experience it, to not say it doesn't exist. It's not not there. It's not that we don't care. It's not that we don't love. It's just, you know, this is important. Like this is really, really important. So I don't know who that mom is. And I, you know, I have nothing but but care for that. And at the same time, it's sort of like, yeah, and what would those kids feel like if they knew they got their mom sick? I mean, that would just be, you know, so it's like, what are, what are, again, what is our intention? Why are we doing what we're doing? And do we need to do it right now? Or can it wait a little bit? I would add that none of this are, none of us that I know of, uh, unless we're really just totally isolated alone in, in one apartment, not going out ever, um, somehow able to get our supplies dropped all off at our door and then by whom um, none of us are doing this a hundred percent perfectly, but um, there's the, uh, the Talmudic invocation. Um, you are not required to complete the work, but neither are you free from to desist from it. You know, we're all really, really, really trying to cut down right now to flatten the curve, to help each other, to stay alive for longer and, and to, to find a solution to this terrible crisis. And um, I'm not asking anybody out there in this world to be perfect because I'm not there and, and none of us are going to get there. But um, to do anything and everything that we really can um, and to try to stretch ourselves to do more to, to flatten this curve and help these people is, is what we need to do right now. I like that a lot. Let me ask a final question of you, Joanna, and this will bring it back to framing it as Greg has exhorted us to do in the positive. I have a some thoughts, some sort of early stage thoughts on Buddhist ethics, and I'm going to run them by you and, and, and you see what you think of it. To me, it's, I don't, as you know, I don't really love phrases like listening to your heart 
Um, what does that even mean? But I've done a lot more loving kindness meditation over the last couple of years. I've done a couple of long, longer retreats of meta practice. And, and I've more, I've noticed that actually there is like an intelligence that lives beneath the neck, beneath the thinking mind. And often there's like a positive bodily response on the level of the molecules, on the level of the gut, on the level of the viscera to when we're doing the right thing. And the the heart knows, the body knows when you're doing the right thing. So it's like I said before, when I promised that I wanted to get back to self-interest, I, I think it really does come back in many ways to the quote often attributed to Abraham Lincoln that he was reputed to have said, when I do good, I feel good. When I do bad, I feel bad. That's my religion. And that's how I think of Buddhist ethics. And I know we're all going to screw up, but that's kind of my North Star in this situation as in every other situation. You're totally close. You're totally close. I mean, it's just like it comes down to the basics of, you know, how do you sleep at night or how do you move through a day? If something is repeating itself in your mind because you, you know, cuss somebody out or because you stepped in front of somebody in line. I know for me, like those kind of things, like just play over and over and over and over again in my mind. And so we have this term, you know, the bliss of blamelessness and that, that freedom, the, the, the freedom, the liberation, the, the, the weight off of us when, um, we're not carrying things around, uh, and, you know, there's this term that I really love, the cognitive dissonance, you know, that can kick in when we, when we override, you know, when we really learn societally, culturally, from, from our families, whatever, to override harm and to override when we're doing something that might not be ethically in alignment with our hearts. But it's like, yeah, we, we all know what it feels like to be free of that. You know, those moments when we're not carrying that weight around, you know, and in the mindfulness world, we really, really know it when we're sitting on the cushion. We know what follows us to the cushion when we're trying to meditate. And most of the time when we can't very well, it's because we're being chased. <laughs> um, and sometimes it's by things we've done. Sometimes it's by things others have done. Guys, thank you very much for doing this. Appreciate it. Mm -hmm. Thank yeah. you Thanks so much. Thanks for the much. opportunity. It was a pleasure. All right. Big thanks to Joanna and Greg. Before we go, just a reminder, join us for 10% Happier Live weekdays, 3 Eastern, noon Pacific. You can uh, just click on 10percent.com slash live. That link is in the show notes. 20-minute daily sanity break. Big thanks to the people putting together this podcast under uh, difficult circumstances, and uh, we've increased everybody's workload because we're now twice a week. Samuel Johns is leading the effort. He's a hero. We also have on board a couple new folks. Jackson Bierfeldt is our editor. Maria Wortel is our production coordinator. And of course, thank you as always to my guys, Ryan Kessler and Josh Cohan from ABC News. We'll see you on Wednesday with a fresh episode. Stay healthy. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. 
For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books. I'm Shimon Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.